you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda the sons of Mahol and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I first had the opportunity to speak, to hear a man called Mark Driscoll preach when I was in my first year at Bible college. It was riveting. 
Over the years that um, proceed, or succeeded that, uh, Dana and I started to podcast Mark Driscoll's preaching nearly every week, and it was hugely helpful. Uh, for Dana, she found that um, the insights he had from the Scriptures made uh, the Bible come alive for her. And for me, for the first time, through those podcasts and those sermons, I started to catch the vision for what church planning could look like, of the need and the opportunity to see new churches planted right around the globe who would know and proclaim the name of Jesus to new people. God did something really beautiful in our lives through this one preacher. So it was probably not surprising that when I finished up in the army and got ready to begin the process of seeking to plant a church here in Geelong, that I went to Seattle and had the opportunity to intern for three weeks at Mars Hill Church. And what I saw in 2012 was deeply impressive. At that stage, Mars Hill was a church of 12,000 people. And uh, I saw week by week fantastic preaching, uh, cutting-edge music, uh, large crowds of people, new Christians, all of every single, I think everything I went to, there were new Christians, and there were the hundreds, thousands of Christians being discipled and grown. It was incredible to be a small cog in this huge, big church machine. Near the end of uh, that time, uh, the Mark Driscoll himself gave me uh, the benefit of an hour of his time um, to speak about what we wanted to do in Geelong, the church planting that we were about to start. It was very kind of him to do that. And in that conversation, um, he spoke about the, the growth of Mars Hill from a, a very small group of people to a church of 12,000 people and all the things that we're doing. And, and then he said, he said, you know, that I am now the most influential preacher in the world. Uh, More people download my sermons than any other preacher. Hundreds of thousands of people listen to every sermon I preach. Now, that was true. But something rang, something caused me trouble by the way that he said that. And, And in fact, for the three weeks that I was there, there were things that didn't sit right. There were some warning signs. Well, so it is with the start of 1 Kings. The start of 1 Kings, which focuses, of course, on Solomon, is the golden age of the kingship of Israel. This is the high point. This is the high watermark. It's a golden age, as you heard from the reading. It all seems so white and godly and pure and full of hope. But maybe like our white snake coiling around the throne, there were warning signs. But before we dive in and we look at the reign of this king, Solomon, the greatest of Israel's kings in terms of power, in terms of wisdom, in terms of authority, we need to understand where we are in the context of the Scriptures. So when we come to the book of 1 Kings, where are we? Well, the people of Israel, as we heard in Exodus, have come out of the promised out of the land of Egypt in slavery. They've come through Moses and Joshua into the promised land of Israel. And now as they're in Israel, they've gone through the, the turbulent periods of the judges 
When each man did what was right in his own eyes, uh, then through the first king Saul and the, and the train wreck that that became, through David and the ups and downs of his kingship, and now we come to David's son, Solomon. The dawn of a golden age, the beginning of the high point as the new king takes his throne. But we also should ask not just where kings comes in the history of of salvation that we see in the Bible, but why was kings written? Why was the book of one and two kings written? And to answer that question, we actually need to start at the very end. We need to go to 586 BC. Jerusalem has just fallen to the pagan Babylonian army. The high point, the golden age is just a distant memory. The last king of Judah shuffles slowly into exile, blinded and chained. God's great experiment seems to have failed. God's people are in exile, far away from his land. And the question that they ask, of course, is, well, why? Why did this happen? Was God not able to control history and politics as he claimed to Moses that he could and would and did? What's gone wrong? How did this happen? And what hope is there for the future? The books of 1 and 2 Kings address these very questions. And therefore, in many ways, the journey that we're going on in these next weeks, it's not a happy journey. There's an air of tragedy in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. It speaks of a kingdom of so much promise and so much beauty and so much hope that is slowly corrupted and eventually destroyed. Now, it's true that the kings we meet in these series, it's not all going to be black. There are some wonderful high points of faithfulness. There's light that breaks through the clouds, but overall, the clouds are massing And we see failure and an accelerating descent into darkness. And then the final exile of God's people. That's the book of 1 and 2 Kings. And and the kings that we will focus in on throughout the story will reflect that. But that's not where we are today. That's a long way ahead from today. Today, we look at the golden age. Today, we look at the high point of God's power, presence, blessings flooding over his people, God's people in God's land under God's king. And at the epicenter of it all is a young man named Solomon, son of David. To this day, one of the most famous people who have lived in history. Today, we're going to look at the rise and the fall of this great king, Solomon. As I mentioned to you, it's 11 chapters. It's ambitious. I'm not going to be going through them all 1 to 11, but I am going to be flicking around. Hopefully, we'll have some of the passages on the screen, but if you are flicking through your Bible, I'll be going backwards and forwards as we look at the story of the rise and the fall of this king. Now, the rise of King Solomon is wonderful, but it nearly didn't happen. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of 1 Kings They portray how close a thing it was. Solomon was the son of of who? David and Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba, as you will know, was, uh, we, we've heard about her in Scripture before, the beautiful woman who was seduced by King David. King David um, murdered her husband Uriah in order to take her. And then King David and Bathsheba have a son, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon's got older brothers who don't necessarily like him. They also want the kingdom and are prepared to fight for it. And the first two chapters, we see how close it was for Solomon. But by the time we get to chapter 3, Solomon is on the throne of Israel, and now things start to hum. Single verse sums up King Solomon. Comes in chapter 3, and it's this. Chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Solomon loved the Lord. That describes this young man who will be the king over Israel. Solomon loved the Lord. And in chapter 3, verse 5, there's a scene which is amazing when you think about it. God appears to Solomon at a place called Gibeon. And we're told the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Imagine that. This is, this is like the genie in the bottle moment for Solomon, right? This is Aladdin. You ain't never had a friend like me. Um, God comes to him and he says, ask what you want and I will give it to you. Ask what you want. What would you ask? You've got one wish. You know, we'll ask for two more wishes. You know, no, no, what would you really ask if you had one chance? Well, we're told what Solomon asks in verse 9. Listen to what he says. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon says, I want one thing. I want the wisdom to do what you've called me to do to the best of my abilities and to do it well. Give me the wisdom. I need it. If you're on any kind of Christian leadership, this is a prayer that you and I need to pray all the time. Too hard. Give us wisdom. And God replies in verse 10 of chapter 3, and this is typical God style, right? I, lo I love what he does here. He says to Solomon, Because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what's right, behold, I now do according to your word. I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. God gives to Solomon what he asks for, wisdom, discernment, understanding. God says, you asked for it and it was a good thing, your wish is granted. And then, this is a typical God, he says this. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in, the ways, in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Don't you love that? Solomon asked for the right thing and God says, you asked for it and I'm giving it to you. I'm giving what you didn't ask for as well. It must have been in the back of your mind, but I'm giving it to you. Wealth and honours and riches, all of it is yours, Solomon. You're loving me, and all of these things will be added unto you, as someone would later say. 
Don't you love it how God does this? And, and it pours out upon Solomon. Solomon becomes the wisest man. And today in English, what, 3,000 years later, we say she had the wisdom of Solomon. This is in our English language to this day. Solomon um, becomes the little country of Israel, which is usually in history caught between superpowers to the north and the south. This little country of Israel under Solomon becomes a regional superpower. The wealth pours in, the political influence grows, and through it all, Solomon's faith remains dynamic and active. And and we see that recorded for us in chapters 5 to 7. They tell us all about the details of the temple that Solomon built, the crowning achievement of his reign. We read chapters 5 to 7 and we go like, come on, let's get through this. All the bat curtains and hangings and, and pillars and things. And we go, ah, you know, this is, this is not as important. But to the, to the writers of 1 and 2 Kings, they're glorying in it. Solomon's heart is, is he's loving the Lord and he's constructing an incredibly beautiful temple for him. And it's amazing. And God's presence then comes into the temple in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And we get Solomon's prayer. If you haven't read it, you should. In chapter 8, the prayer of a man whose heart is, is devoted to God. As the Ark of the Covenant comes in to this new temple that Solomon has made. Chapter 9, God, gets, God gives to Solomon extraordinary privilege. He appears to him again. Twice. Solomon gets to see and encounter the living God. This is the high point. This is the golden age. And uh, chapter 4, verse 20 sums it all up. It says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. It was a good time to be alive. In Solomon's Israel, you lived in a superpower where we're told that, you know, silver, no one cared about silver. We only were interested in gold. Silver, you know, who cares? It's worth nothing. Israel has finally become much more than material possessions. Israel has finally become what God had promised that she would be and, and called her to be a light to the nations. The Queen of Sheba is coming from way down somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula to see Solomon. His wisdom and fame have gone out People are looking at God's people in God's land going, look at what God has done. This is incredible. It's amazing. And at the center of it all is this superstar, Solomon, the wisest king ever to have lived. And at this point, you and I go, well, all we need now was the epitaph and Solomon lived happily ever after. Wouldn't that have been wonderful to read? We love happy endings. But the issue is, is that as you read through these 11 chapters, and you, you in no way want to um, undermine what, the, what is clearly there, the celebration of an amazing work of God in his people through his king. But there's some warning signs in those first chapters. They're not massive, but they're there. I'll give you a couple of them. Number one... Solomon gives some of the cities of the promised land away to pay some debts for his construction projects. He gives God's inheritance to others, to pagan nations. It's a warning sign. 
We're told that Solomon conscripts vast numbers of his own people into a forced labor, forced labor camps, basically. Really? And we're told that Solomon amasses, and we heard it in our reading this morning, a huge chariot force, which sounds impressive, except that God explicitly, in his commandments to the king in the book of Deuteronomy, said, don't do it. Don't build up a large chariot force and a huge army. Now, commentators are divided to what extent these are just little blips, little tiny flaws, or to what extent they're actually indicative of a serious problem. But what we do know for sure is that the warning signs were there. And I actually think that a drift, slow, imperceptible, had already begun. Well, at Mars Hill Church when I was there, so much was good. So much was actually amazing. So much to this day I look back on uh, with thankfulness, the things that I learned and the people that I met and the things that I saw. But there were some things that didn't sit right then. I spoke with Dana about them at the time. I was like, oh, and I was like, oh maybe it's just I'm Australian and, and there's some cultural differences here. That's probably what it is. But there were some things that didn't sit right. And later in those years that followed, sadly, um, things started to, the seeds started to grow or the warning signs started to grow larger in Driscoll's life. Uh, controversy throughout 20, 2013 started to intensify. There were some really ungodly things that happened under his leadership, things that were not repented for. And tragically, in 2014, two years after I was there, the church of 12,000 people, the church ceased to exist. And the ramifications of it, the sorrow and the grief of its collapse continue to this day. For Solomon, the fall was very much worse. The rise had been spectacular, the fall was no less spectacular. As Solomon grew older, he became sick with a terrible disease, heart disease. And we say, well, that's not a surprise. Heart disease is still the biggest killer in Australia by far every year. But the heart disease I'm speaking about is not the physical heart disease. Solomon contracted a spiritual heart disease. In chapter 11, it's almost like the writer of 1 Kings is holding it off as long as he can, but he gets there in chapter 11, he says this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from all the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. In chapter 11, five times we're told about Solomon's heart turning away. Solomon alone is responsible for his heart disease, but it's very clear from the context where his problem lies primarily. The issue, the presenting issue for Solomon is that he had a problem with women. 
Deuteronomy 17, 17 commanded the king not to have many wives. Solomon, uh, by any, anyone's definition, I think, had many wives, a thousand. Now, I never know whether this, well, being honest, I never know whether this would have been a good thing for a man to have a thousand wives or a bad thing. If you are married, let me tell you, it's a bad thing. You need to make sure you, you convey that to your wife. It's a bad thing. And the impact for Solomon was certainly a very bad thing. Verse 4, and his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. If the rise of Solomon, as I said, was described in chapter 3, verse 3, by saying Solomon loved the Lord. If that was the rise, the fall is described by 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now, politically, we know that many, maybe the majority of these relationships were, were not like amorous kind of romantic attachments. They were political alliances. They were probably wise diplomatic policy. But they caused a sickness in his heart. Now, the Apostle Paul says that uh, a, a single man is, is devoted wholly to the work of the Lord, but a married man becomes devoted to pleasing his wife. Solomon had a thousand wives to please. And true, it's important to remember that, that Solomon never entered formally into the tragedy of deconstructionism of his faith. Solomon never landed and said, hey, actually, I'm an atheist. Or he never actually ended up fully committing to the embrace of paganism. But his heart is so sick, he's lost his first love. Today, we'd probably say that Solomon broadened. Doesn't this often happen as men and women get older? You know, we broaden. As a young man or a young woman, we're, we're so black and white, we think things are so simple and, and you just got to love God and you've got to turn away from everything else. But, but as you grow older, you see, and his wives helped him see, that there was actually truth in other religions. That actually, um, there was, in other faiths aside from his own, there was things to learn and there were dialogue to take place with, with. So what harm could there be in building a little chapel to Chemosh outside Jerusalem or, or going with his wife to a Baal worship service? It'd be actually really loving and kind and gracious, wouldn't it, to do something like that? And you know, happy wife, happy life. But God doesn't share our enlightenment on these things and neither should we. In 11 verse 7, we're told that Solomon built a temple to Molech. And we think, oh, it's just another, another faith perspective, another rich mosaic part of all of the faiths that they're all good things to teach. I don't know if you know about Molech. I saw a statue of Molech once in a museum in Israel. A big statue made out of iron that had been dug up from somewhere. And the statue of Molech had a hole in the stomach. And what you would do if you were coming to worship at the temple of Molech is that statue would stand here with the hole in its stomach and inside or behind that hole would be a roaring fire. And what you did when you worshipped Molech 
and you really wanted Molech to listen to you was you took your little, sort of, your little son or your daughter and you took them to the worship service and at one moment in there, you went forward to show your devotion to the God and you threw that little baby into the hole in that idol's stomach and that baby was burned alive. That's what you did. And Solomon builds a temple to Molech. We're not talking about rival worldviews. We're not talking about rival religious things. We are talking about demons, as the Apostle Paul speaks of them. Demons. This is, this is, this is not like a little bit, you know, you've got God and you add a little bit of the other religions and you become broader. No, you become apostate. And the faith that you have and the heart that you long for is corrupted and sick. And God is just and holy and good. So, and God has poured out his love on Solomon and Solomon's heart has been right. So what does God do? Does God say, well, Solomon, that's okay. No, God is holy and he is just. He must deal with it and he does. 11 verse 1, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Now, these are words of judgment, but can you, can you feel the agony of God in them? I can. Can't. Solomon, I appeared to you twice. I gave you everything you asked for and more. And this is how you respond. This is how you repay my love. And so in those last chapters, we read that peace is withdrawn from Solomon. I believe it was the inner peace withdrawn. But it was also the outer peace. Adversaries are raised up by God. Enemies are given strength by God to deal with Solomon. His own life is dramatically shortened. He doesn't live long as God had promised him he would if he was faithful. And as for his kingdom and as for his legacy, don't, don't we want a legacy? It doesn't even last a month. After his death, the kingdom is ripped away from him from his, his descendant Rehoboam. Now this is judgment tempered with mercy, but it's, it's a terrible judgment. The reality is that the greatest of all the kings of Israel, the leader of the golden age, in his old age, has heart disease. I was reading this um, these books recently with my kids in preparation to, to, um, to preach this series. And as we went through here, Arabella, my, my 10-year-old daughter, said, Dad, will we see Solomon in heaven? What a poignant question. I'll tell you who we will see in heaven, Ross Whitehand. You may not know Ross. Ross, he's a, he was a member of our church here. On Thursday, I did the funeral for this godly saint, I can tell you, as I was looking at that coffin, I know where Ross is. He's not in there. He's in heaven with Jesus. Oh, yeah, certainty. Solomon? I don't know. I don't think anyone does. A tragedy. The rise and the fall of King Solomon. As I conclude, I want to ask, what might the Holy Spirit be saying to each one of us through this? 
Well, reading, I think reading a book like this and reading a story like Solomon's, it should cause us to be introspective. It should cause us to look inward. It should cause us to look inward as a church and ask, have we in some measure received as a church, I mean the global church here, I mean sitting on a hill, have we received some of these blessings from God in abundance? And I think the answer is yes. I don't think we can say that what God has done in and through us is unique. I think God works in other churches in greater ways, in different ways, but God has worked through the City on a Hill movement and he's worked through City on a Hill Geelong. It seems like yesterday that I gathered in a Bible study and we were over the moon if seven or eight people would show. Wow, we're booming, it's revival. And since then, God has grown our community here in Geelong you know, we've been able to come together with St. Matthew's. We, we've seen uh, God's given us facilities, wonderful facilities. We've seen a church plant at, at Surf Coast, another one going on in Whittington, Ballarat. Going to happen. I'll talk to you about it later. Ballarat going ahead. God has blessed us abundantly and richly. We have seen God do amazing things, but are there signs of danger? Is there warning signs? Would someone part of our church look back and go, oh yeah, I could see the warning signs now looking back? Is there pride? Is there an attitude of complacency? Is it like, we know what to do, we just get the strategies together and, and it happens, we know what to do. Now, is there a belief we've done it before, we'll do it again. Is there this kind of dependency on ourselves? Is, is there heart sickness within our church? It's, it's a really good question to ask, isn't it? As we look at our church, is there, are there warning signs? And you know why I ask this? I ask this because... There are many things that I could have done with my life. But I believe that God called me to ambition and a vision to be in this city and to be a light and a blessing personally and to be part of a church community that was doing those things. The vision that I would love to see is this city of Geelong saturated with gospel preaching churches for the glory of God. I don't care about my name and my legacy in that sense, but I do care that my legacy invests in something that will last for the glory of God. We've only got one life. And we will spend it one way or the other. And so I'm concerned with this question because I want to see a long time after I am dead and buried in the grave with the Lord Jesus, if he tarries, that the impact of my life and of your life as we part of this church is one that brings glory to God. And so I say, do we see these signs? It's a good question to ask. If you see these signs, you should Chat to me, chat to others about it. But I tell you what, I hope what you see is a church that says, we haven't got it together. We haven't arrived. We are longing for more of God. We are praying and seeking God's face. We want to continue to fast and to pray and to practice the spiritual disciplines, not because we want to have a brownie list, but because we see and believe that these are the ways which we encounter God's presence and we stay faithful to God. It's like exercise for your heart. It's like a good diet for your heart. We don't want heart sickness as a community. We want to have a healthy heart. We want to be able to say, I would love someone 100 years later to say, city on a hill, Geelong, loved Jesus. But what about us as individuals? Let's keep looking even more introspectively. Not, not the church, what about you? I recently had to uh, have uh, a heart test. 
um, as part of my work in the Army Reserves. And, uh, and to my shock, it came back that I have a heart problem. And I was like, yeah, like you do the ECGs and you always expect it's going to be fine. And, uh, and they came back and said, oh, no, you, you've got a heart problem. It turned out it was, apparently I'd had a heart problem for the last 25 years and they'd only just picked it up. So they weren't particularly worried about it and neither was I. But apparently I've got a heart problem. But the question is that I ask myself and we should each of us ask, have we got a heart problem? And you will know, as I will know, that it's possible to have a heart problem and not really know about it until you have a heart attack. So how are our hearts spiritually? Have you started well? If you're a younger person, are you starting well running the race that's before you? Your heart is healthy. That's wonderful. Are you an older person? Has God used you wonderfully in the past? Could you point back and say, I remember that time when God did this or that. God was so close. I was used by God for this or for that. And he's, he was, it was wonderful walking with him. If that's true, then rejoice and give thanks that God has used you to build his kingdom. Because my belief is that God uses every single Christian to build his kingdom and to build his church. I think that's what Bible teaches So when you see that happening in your life, rejoice. But remember, Solomon, while he provides a wonderful example in his rise of the faithfulness to God, he provides a tragic example in his fall of what unfaithfulness looks like. The commentator Adele Ralph Davis makes this telling observation as he considers Solomon. He says this, Even the most privileged and intimate experiences with God do not provide immunity from infidelity. Do you hear that? Even the most privileged and intimate experiences with God do not provide immunity from infidelity. Solomon's example is so frightening to me because it's so slow. It's so gradual. The, the, the warning signs that you see, they, they take decades before they bear fruit. There's a little compromise here. There's a little a little blurring of things there. It's a slow process, but the culmination of it is tragic. It's like saying, well, you eat the fatty food today and tomorrow, and there's no difference. You know, you're still just like you were, but you do that over time, and you end up with heart disease. Someone made compromises. He accommodated to the culture. He still continued to do many of the right things. He still said he was a believer in Yahweh, but they weren't little things to God. And you know what? They never are. No one ever suddenly walks out on their wife or husband. No one ever suddenly deconstructs and goes, you know what? I'm not a Christian anymore. No one ever suddenly commits great sin. It, it, it just never happens. It's always the response of something or the culmination of something that started small and has now grown into full fruit. How is your Heart. Maybe you think that the rules don't apply to you anymore because you've been running this race a long time. Maybe you think that you've arrived. Maybe, like Solomon, there's someone that you love or something that you love that you know that you should not. You know that it's in, in contradiction to your love for God. It's, it's not an either, it's not a both and, it's an either or. Jesus says you can't love money and God. But maybe it's actually more specifically, it's a, it's a relationship that you should not have, but you have, and you know you shouldn't. Well, when we see Solomon's example, it says, look inwardly and learn. 
The Scriptures were written for our teaching and encouragement. If you've got heart disease, now's the time to go to a heart surgeon, right? Now's the time to deal with it before it's too late, before you have the heart attack. Now is the time. I think that's one of the reasons that Solomon's recorded for us. Yes, there's a wider theological perspective to it, but, but it points at our heart and says, to what extent are you and I like Solomon? Because you're a, if you're a Christian, you've received incredible blessings from God in Jesus Christ. You've received incredible things, more than you could have asked or expected. See Solomon's example. And humble, and repent, and humble yourself, repent to God. Before God, if there's any area where you can see that the Holy Spirit says, you know what, you've got to stop this. Now's the time to do that. So the rise and fall of King Solomon. When you read these accounts, you think, maybe we're at the golden age. Maybe we were at the position and the place that God promised. Maybe Solomon is the prophet like Moses that Moses spoke about. Maybe Solomon is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. But it ended the fall with tragedy. But as I end today, and as we go through this series, we are going to see that none of the kings really stack up. They're just like us. They have good points and bad points. They have wins and they have losses. And I love it that there was another king who came to earth and he said, one greater than Solomon is here. The Lord Jesus, he reflected on Solomon and he says, one greater than Solomon is here. Listen to him. And as we go through this series, it's not just a historical um, interest point that is kind of engaging. We're going to see again and again, not only our own lives reflected in the lives of the kings, but the fact that you and I need the real king. There was a king who came and grew in grace and godliness. He rose, and oh, how high he rose. He rose to teach God's word, to, to live that pure life that he lived He also rose to become famous. And then he fell. And how hard he fell. But not because he had heart sickness, but because he had a pure heart that broke for the world. Because he had a pure heart that overabounded with the love and compassion of God for a world that is lost. And he fell so far down into the grave. And then he rose again. A triumphant rise, a rise that conquers all, that stands now with God his Father forever and all thrones and authorities and kingdoms bow before him. This Jesus, we're going to see his shadow right throughout this book of 1 and 2 Kings, but we know much more than his shadow. We know that there is one who is greater than Solomon and there is one who, if you are a Christian, has called you to join with him, even though your life may be a series of rises and falls, you're called to be united with him who will not fall. No one who comes to me will I ever turn away, Jesus said. So I'm going to pray, and then thanks, thanks guys, and we're going to sing out and close out our time together. Father, um, we thank you for this book of 1 Kings. We thank you for Solomon. 
We thank you for what he can teach us. We thank you for the way that you used him and that, and that his love for you was, was reflected so wonderfully in his life and his way. But Lord, we also see his fall. We see the slow progression or regression. And Father, we come to you and we pray with thankfulness that in Jesus, we have a, a far better and greater king. That in Jesus, we have one who, who never lets us go and never fails. And we pray that as we sing and go out into the week and as we close our time together, that our hearts would love Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.